watchers in the fourth dimension. So quiet, it could be a graveyard. No planet appears to be completely dead. It's the silence. It's the sort of silence you can almost hear. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And let us give you something to joke about, shall we? You are of no further use to me and would make a perfect specimen for our museums. This episode, as you can guess from Riley's little snippet, we will be discussing the Space Museum. Looking behind the scenes, as we always do before we start our main discussion, this story was actually commissioned by David Whitaker before he left the story editor role. The writer, Glyn Jones, had never actually seen Doctor Who before, and Whitaker commissioned him on the strength of his other work, most of which had been for the theatre rather than TV. Glyn Jones will actually return to Doctor Who in the 1970s, but not as a, as a writer, but as an actor, and he'll appear in season 12's The Sontaran Experiment. In the director's chair, we have the return of Mervyn Pinfield and what would turn out to be his last involvement with Doctor Who. He was actually meant to direct a couple of serials in season three, but he fell ill during pre-filming and would sadly pass away within a year. Spencer Chapman returns as designer, having previously worked on the Dalek Invasion of Earth. This would also be his last contribution to the show. Being filmed on a tight budget, there was actually no composer assigned to this story, and so stock music was used. This week, the short summary is actually in my hands. So... In a highly atmospheric first episode, our intrepid travellers find themselves stuck in the Twilight Zone, where they explore a creepy space museum, eventually finding lifeless future versions of themselves enclosed in glass cases as an exhibit. Unfortunately, the remainder of the story turns out to be just as lifeless as the TARDIS crew exhibit, with the notable exception of Vicky, who blossoms into a cut-price Che Guevara, all in a day's work for the season's low-budget story. <laughs> <laughs> And since I have so far monopolised the microphone, I will let the others speak as we start discussing the first episode, The Space Museum. Great model set to start, right? You know, you got to appreciate the model work at the beginning. You know? hey, that entire opening shot was very well done. From the beginning of the TARDIS column to the model shot. Really cool. Yeah. It was really cool, but it was also just kind of, I think, different than a lot of other openings that we've gotten thus far. So it was just like, it was... A it was an interesting change uh, that we decided to do that. I think the opening on this, to, to me, this first episode really reminded me in places of The Edge of Destruction. Just in terms of the, we don't really know what's going on. Things happen like suddenly they all have their ordinary clothes back on and the doctor just dismisses it. <laughs> Everything's kind of frozen. We have no clue what's going on. And if you think back to The Edge of Destruction, that opened or, or followed on from the end of the Daleks where they're suddenly all knocked to the ground and, and who knows what the hell's happening. And I really got that same feeling here. I just found it funny that the doctor's explanation is time and relativity. That's how we're wearing different clothes. I'm like, that's, that's not how that works. Just a nice way of him saying, uh, whatever. <laughs> I thought it was just him betraying himself and like, because this happens to him all the time because he's probably going senile. He's like, oh, yeah, I totally forget that I change my clothes all the time. In this, I mean, there's so much here, and, and this is, take a drink alert, something that Sandiford draws attention to, and that this comes across as kind of a parody of the early tropes of Doctor Who in places. So the Doctor looks at the TARDIS console before they go out and says, oh, yes, the readings say it's quite safe, which kind of calls back to the Daleks, where it ostensibly wasn't safe. 
Is that where Barbara calls him out on it and says the scanners don't always tell the whole story? Yes. It was Absolutely. like they finally started watching their own show and realized, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't recall Serial attempting so much humor. I mean, oh, like self-reflexive humor. There's that scene where, where they go outside and start exploring and the doctor says, well, I suggest we all stick together. It's like, oh, someone's been watching the show at last. See? They started like going, like, wait a minute. We keep doing the same things every time. Yeah, I really love this first episode. There was a lot of cool things in it. Like the effect of Vicky dropping the glass of water and then going backwards. I thought that was really well done. Oh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. I was like, that actually worked. I believed it. And I love her reaction of just, she was so dumbfounded. And I was like, there we go. Everyone throughout this entire serial just needed to listen to Vicky. It would have been half an episode long, but <laughs> still. Yeah. This first episode is definitely the strongest of the four, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. It's, it sets up a great mood. Necessarily a... a that what was the problem is that they, there's a tired conflict that we have that comes up later that Doctor Who seems at least at this point seems to constantly do one one race or class or alien species versus another a the overbearing overlords versus the downtrodden and that's nice and good but it gets kind of old but just the fact of just our core four walking around just trying to figure things out and getting lost. Yeah, we'll get and to the, uh, how- the Widow's Peaks versus the mods The later, eyebrows? But... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's how I define them. Boba <laughs> Fett has some eyebrows. serious eyebrows going on. <laughs> but this first episode is is one of the strongest of, of this, this season, if not maybe the entire show so far. Really well done. Yeah. And the scenes of them exploring the, the museum are wonderfully eerie. And I really love the, the little bluff they give us where they find the Dalek in there. <gasps> yes. And I particularly love how Ian says that meeting the ga- them again is quite unlikely, I hope. Like, Ian, shut up. <laughs> well, and again, we had another instance of after the Dalek, Vicky just puts her hand through something and then they don't believe her because this is the episode of let's not believe Vicky. But I really enjoyed that. Like kind of like I thought at the time, since I didn't know what was going on, kind of like hologram projection of them being like being able to pass their hand through something. Again, I thought from a, you know, special effects perspective, that was actually again, well done. Oh yeah. It's really cool. And then there's that little conversation between Ian and the doctor where they're not quite sure whether they're invisible or whether they're just not really there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would also like to point out that technically in this episode, they did wind up watching themselves in the fourth dimension. Yes, they did. I'm just saying. So, I mean, eventually they obviously come across themselves in the glass cases which is just a wonderful scene and i love the reaction and particularly barbara who just looks at it and just says it's horrible and <laughs> I, I know that's uh, how i feel when i look at myself when i first wake up in the morning in the mirror but still <laughs> come on barbara cut yourself some slack my first reaction wouldn't be oh i think that's actually me in there i'd be like so they have some sort of like wax figure or some sort of other way of or, or just having a hologram. Me- 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why they went from, you know, it's like, oh, like, this is a weird museum to, oh, my God, that's me, my actual body. I'm like, it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's a bit of a stretch, but the only reason that's happening, and in fact, why the first episode exists, is to give them a future that they can prevent from happening, which does contradict the Aztecs of not being able to change one line of history, just a touch, Doctor. But that's all they're doing. They're just setting up, here's what we have to avoid. Yeah, and, and on that note, Don, it comes back to that question of, you know, why is it okay to meddle in, in the future in Scarrow, which is theoretically someone else's history, mm-hmm. but not okay to meddle in the Earth's history? It's, it's very hazily defined. And I think as we've moved from David Whittaker to Dennis Spooner's tenure, we've started to see less rules in place around that. Or fewer rules, I should say. Does this kind of experimentation work? I think so. Like, I I unabashedly love this episode. Yeah, it's great. It reminds me very much there's a Twilight Zone episode, a classic Twilight Zone episode called uh, Fork. I'm going to miscount it. It's, I believe, four characters in search of an exit. It might be five, (laughs) so please forgive me. But it's a very strong episode, and it's just very basic. It's five unique characters in a basically a what appears to be just a enclosed square with no doors, and they can see <gasps> up above them, way up. That one? There is an opening. I... Yes, I love that one. Yeah, and, and it just shows that, you know, with good characters and a decent mystery, you don't really need to do much else. You know, you can, you know, it sets a good mood, and the characters can provide, like, the fleshing out of it all, and that's what this first episode's like. See, I, I actually drew a parallel with a different Twilight Zone episode, which was Death Ship, which oh. is where they where some astronauts land on a desert planet and find that their own ship is already there with their corpses on board it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we're all getting Twilight Zone vibes out of this one. Yeah, and, it's, and I, is it something to do with, because, like, with the classic, well, with all the renditions of the Twilight Zone, the opening credit sequence always has a you know, very eclectic, you know, passing through of items. And with the Space Museum, you also see just very eclectic objects just everywhere. And it kind of adds to, like, the creepiness factor of the of the set, I guess. Maybe that's it. It makes yeah. you think Twilight Zone. I think so. One other thing regarding the first episode that I thought was very interesting was, uh, you said it was a stock music, but I swear, I, I believe there was a musical cue when Ian indicates that they are walking on dust, but why aren't they leaving any footprints? Mm-hmm. Did, did that strike? Has anyone maybe like a little bit over the top and done intentionally that way? You could select stop music that does that. They probably found something from something that was a lot more intense and then just used it there. Yeah, I just don't know if that felt like it needed such a strong sting of a Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> compared to like just... <laughs> Compared to just like maybe just a weird like theremin noise in the background. Oh, that is weird. Hey, go big or go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's just what happens when you don't create a score that's specific for the thing that you're creating. That it that's what's going to happen if you don't have a good music editor. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's a, a piece of music. I think it's in the fourth episode that was really jarring for me because it's lifted directly out of Quatermass and the Pit, which I know pretty well. 
And so I was like, oh, I know this. And it's just set to something that I'm not used to seeing it next to. It has its pros and its cons. I mean, they can select something super appropriate or they risk someone noticing it and recognizing it from something else. Speaking of which, I loved, loved, loved the piece of music they chose when time starts running normally. Absolutely. I, that struck me as well. And of course, Barbara is the one who senses time starting to run normally again because she's Barbara, the queen. <laughs> queen! Which leads us nicely into our next episode, The Dimensions of Time. Where we learn the full story between the widow peaks versus the eyebrows. Exactly. <laughs> As I called them, you know, those in black and not in black. So I feel personally attacked by that comparison. Very interesting costume choices. I would beg to say that they are not very alien. And their costume is <laughs> they saved a lot of the budget on the the costumes here. It also this is a, a good bit of contrast, and I think this is why this serial isn't as highly regarded in some circles. You go from a fantastic Twilight Zony episode of, of weirdness, and then your first three three to five minutes leading on up into an eternity are some guy with a widow's peak just complaining about how, oh, yeah, I know, I had volunteered for this, and blah, 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 and it's just... Oh I, I'm not going to lie, it, it took me a long time to figure out what he was complaining about, because I just couldn't care. I kept waiting for him to start yeah. talking about his wife, and how his kids don't <laughs> respect him, and just, just like, this is, a, this is very different. And his hernia is acting I know, out. right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's it was utterly ridiculous. It was almost like the tone shift was so strong there, and it it's a shame yeah. because it's like right there you can just feel the serial as it passes from episode to episode, just dropping and dropping and dropping. <laughs> and especially like watching it one after the like right after the other, as opposed to like a week apart, because you know it's like I was sitting there and I was like I went straight from the space museum to the dimensions of time, and it was just like, well, that what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if I would feel differently if I waited more in between episodes, but probably not. That was the only part I really didn't like and wasn't into. I mean, I I saw eventually where they were going with the story. And I'm like, well, this is not what I was expecting, but I'm okay. But those first few minutes. With his whining, along with just some random techno babble thrown in that didn't need to be there, was excruciating. It, it just totally did a wonderful job of destroying whatever mystique was like set up in the previous episode. And I, I think where this episode really falls down is it starts with that huge exposition dump of we didn't get the scene set in episode one, so we're now in episode two. And suddenly all of this stuff that should have been drawn out naturally over 25 minutes, but instead they were busy doing something cool, we get just dumped in us in one huge monologue or slight dialogue in the first three or four minutes. When I look at this one in particular, there's a lot here. This is a lot deeper than it seems on the surface. So my reading of this was I got a lot of... Uh, themes of colonialism here so the moroc empire is in decline galactic conquest is a thing of the past they're at desk jobs they're administrators they're not out conquering the galaxy anymore on top of that 
Glyn Jones, the writer, was South African, and if you listen carefully, the Morocks have a very slight South African accent. So you've got the Morocks dressed in white with the Zerons in black who are being oppressed. So this is also a bit of a commentary on apartheid, which is well in swing at this time. And we're starting to see international boycotts around that. I think the intention in the script was solid, but the way it's executed on screen, and particularly after rewrites from Dennis Spooner, it just doesn't really work that well. And don't forget the the, the tie-in with like the youth movement of the day and that the eyebrows are all young and the widow peakers are all middle-aged or if not older. Right, so there's elements of that kind of cult- counterculture movement in there as well. I love how you got all that depth about apartheid and my <laughs> one of my first thoughts when his second-in-command that eventually talks to his own people, how he's lucky to be blocked them. I thought, hey, is that Stephen Fry? How can he be here? Because every time he showed up, I'm like, hey, it's, oh, wait, no. You're talking about the commander? Yes. That's so funny. You say Stephen Fry, I say Ted Cruz. Oh, Sorry, God. Stephen Fry. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen Fry. Wow. That is the only time that Stephen Fry will ever be compared to Ted Cruz. Yes, I just wanted me some space milk shit, that's all, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Glenn Jones was actually really, really upset by the time this made it to screen because he had put a lot more humour in the scripts and Dennis Spooner, who wrote The Romans, tones down the humour. Wow. wow. Yeah, he was like, this is high concept sci-fi, this shouldn't be so funny. Bad call. But history can be? It's only funny if Nero is going around chasing a poor woman. It's only okay if I do it, seems to be his message. Oh, yeah, yeah you know, the, that, that's not misogynistic at all. I'm the only funny man <laughs> in this village. All right, so I'm going to move on from this, what we've all agreed was a terrible first three or four minutes, and yes. move on to some of the rest of the things. There are some good bits. There are some good The good bits? bits? Can we talk about the doctor hiding in the Dalek? Oh yes. my gosh. Yes. And impersonating a Dalek. <laughs> the impersonation was the oh Yes. God. And he's just having a blast. Oh yes. So much fun. That's the big thing with Hartnell in this season, is he is just constantly <laughs> giggling to himself, having the best time. It's wonderful. And then he like separates from the group by like, I don't know what he did to separate from the group. I honestly kind of almost missed it. He was looking at something, just some random museum thing, and then he was he was clumsily attempted to be kidnapped by the mods. Yeah, I was like, that seemed very obvious. Like, it was on purpose that he wanted to get caught by these guys. Did anyone else enjoy the scene in which all four of them are trying to determine which direction to go? <laughs> I thought that was really wonderful. I thought that was that type of, like, back and forth. It was, um, you know, that kind of, maybe I'm a child of the 80s, but very uh, Sam and Diane or uh, very moonlighting. Of it to have like this kind of like you know argument, but playful argument going back and forth, right? And then I think a little bit later, what's also interesting, there is like kind of a after the split up, there is a somewhat intense argument, uh, or I like to call it a lover's quarrel between Barbara and Ian. You stole my words, <laughs> exactly, you stole my words. <laughs> it seems like quarrel. you could definitely see there was something underneath that. He seems to, Ian seems to get a little excited when he just, you know, pulls the cardigan off of her. Calm down, dear chap. Calm down. <laughs> Ian's Time very excitable through this whole serial. This is the one where he just kind of loses it. 
Daleks, giant bugs, that's no problem. But for him, the thought of being put in a space museum, that's his tipping point. And then I love how they're like, you know what, we're going to like tear apart this cardigan. And I'm like, trying to tear apart a cardigan down to its thread is not the easiest thing to do. Oh, really? Have you tried it with your teeth like Ian did? <laughs> <laughs> Even though he had a knife in his pocket, apparently. Uh, I mean, we all think about the doctor <laughs> popping out of the Dalek as like, a, you know, like that's that's the gift. We make a gift. I think it's Ian, like, you know, tearing into the cardigan with his teeth. <laughs> uh, yeah. But now we're getting to one of the best scenes. Yes. Do it. Take us there. <laughs> Anthony, you can do it, man. Are we talking about the uh, the doctor in in the questioning? The this is the scene that finally proves conclusively that the walrus was not Paul or John; it was the doctor <laughs> all along. That's canon. That's canon. The doctor is the walrus. So we are truly in mod culture here. Mm-hmm. A few years before the Beatles even recorded it. Absolutely. The lighting that they chose to use on the doctor's face is, I loved that. Always underlit and all spooky. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he has the right facial structure for it. Cause like sir, the things that need to go in shadow, go in shadow. And it's just, it's wonderful. And I think that's one of Pinfield's real strengths as a director is just how good he is with lighting. And that shines through mm-hmm. here. That scene is just so wonderful, and I was just enjoying myself just as much as the doctor was. I swear to you, I felt like he was about to like rickroll <laughs> in that scene. Like uh, he uh, he kind of did, just I guess with but with walrus footage and a penny farthing bicycle. Uh, I want one of those so badly. For the majority of this episode, the doctor's just such a little shit. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to run around like crazy. Uh, I'm going to pretend to be Daleks, and then I'm going to annoy the hell out of this guy. I don't know who he is, but he's just like, you know what? I'm having a blast. Yeah, and he's just consistently one step ahead of Lobos in, in the whole interrogation scene. I, I just love it. But equally, when he sees himself in the exhibit, cliffhanger. And Lobos sentences the doctor to go on vacation for a week. <laughs> <sighs> Yep, Billy needed his holidays again. So, episode three, The Search. Which does have kind of the worst title of everything in this serial. You've got great stuff like The Final Phase and Dimensions of Time and The Search. Could be somebody looking for their keys. What also makes it pretty terrible is the fact that it's called The Search and it is implied that they're searching for the other three of our TARDIS crew and yet they find them in the first, like, five minutes. If this were if this story were a, a metal EP, we would have three thrash songs and the search would be the incredibly cheesy Power Rangers style power metal track. Or a twelve minute instrumental. Yes. Your choice. <laughs> yeah, this was for me definitely the weakest. We do have that wonderful shot early on of the Morocks shooing the Zerons away from the TARDIS. Like just just Get out of here. Go. Go, you beatniks. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get more terrible exposition. I had no idea what was going on. And 
Uh, I was just like, okay, so there's the TARDIS. All right. I think they're doing something to the TARDIS. Well, first they just were looking at it. And they were like, oh, we can't get in. And this guy was like, well, didn't you ask for the cutting tools? And the guy was like, hey, guy, you were supposed to have the cutting tool. No, you didn't ask. No, he didn't. He's he's completely just, you know, come on, dude, take the blame for me here. They're not very good at their jobs, and I don't think they care. <laughs> Ugh. I actually wrote down, I have no idea what's going on. I was just, I was lost. I was like the guy who was like, but you didn't ask for the tools. What do you want me to do? I don't know. Well, crap rolls downhill. That's that's what was going on in that scene. I'm going to be honest, this episode, the only thing that really engaged me in all of this was Vicky just being a rebel. Being a community organizer. Yeah. Vicky was the best part of this, although... This is where we had Ian taking a hostage. Oh yeah, we get an Ian fight scene. He first sacrifices himself so that Barbara and Vicky can escape. And then he has that epic battle. Epic? The muscle is back, guys. I mean, as epic as you can get in this. <laughs> it's a very, very low bar. Yeah. But he still comes out. It's fine. But yes, Vicky just being awesome. As soon as she decides, let's start a revolution. Let's get some weapons. Let's take down the government, let's man. Let's hack these terrible computers. <laughs> Speaking of that, as soon as she hacks them and is doing her thing, the huge grin on her face when they're like, "What?" When the computer's like, "What do you need the weapons for?" And just she just goes, "Revolution!" Revolution! <laughs> it's wonderful. One thing I noticed here is the Zerons are wearing Converse. Yes, I noticed that as well. That is so mod. <laughs> It's so very alien. Is it possible that we can start up a, uh, like, uh, make our own t-shirts through Che Guevara t-shirts, but with Vicky's face? Yes, <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> there is one thing I noticed about this episode that I think needs to be pointed out. Well, two things. The first, once again, the rebels aren't listening to Vicky either until she basically just gives them the weapons. But... <laughs> And this may be the first instance where I've noticed it. There are two examples of I'll explain later in this. Ooh, I missed that. <laughs> Vicky says it once, and I think the doctor has a moment somewhere in the serial like that. I, is, is this our first time? I think this may be the first documented I'll explain later. We should add it to the metrics. Oh, man. Me and my big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, one of the things that I was going to mention is Barbara's hair. Did anyone see what happened? Because, like, after she's, like, she's escaping and then she gets into, like, the room with the smoke and everything. And her hair is just wild and it's great. Is it sex hair? It Just about. Okay. <laughs> just about. Yeah. I just wanted an excuse to say sex hair. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Barbara, she gets herself trapped in a closet. Since I've been somewhat forewarned that, you know, Barbara and Ian aren't around forever, I what? think they're trying to... Yeah, I know, right? Because some <sighs> people, you know, talk about things and shit. This is an outrage. <laughs> but I think part of it is to give Vicky more to do, since they're probably going to be leaving in the nearish future. I don't know when that is. Here's a fun fact. For each of the previous serials plus this one we've been watching someone on the caster crew has decided that this is what's going to make them leave for william chesterton it was oh well my brain just shut down the web planet william russell yeah william russell yeah. it was for that um this was where <laughs> jacqueline our beloved barbara decided eh, you know what i think i'm done 
I know sometime in the last few stories, Verity decided she was leaving, and I know at some point Dennis Spooner decided he was leaving. So, yeah, it's all beginning to get a little rough for them. But speaking of Ian, we get the return of bloodthirsty Ian. He doesn't kill anyone. He talks about how it might be enjoyable to kill Lobos. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, do it, Ian. I knew he Give wasn't going to kill the guy he took hostage, because that guy just didn't care. He's like, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, you know, by the way, watch out for the guards in there. They may get you. He was he was just the most helpful hostage I've ever seen. I think he would have loaned Ian 10 bucks. We'd ask for it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just whatever. Would you like my jacket while yeah, we're here? It's kind of chilly here. We wouldn't get cold. Oh. Please take my jacket. <laughs> but yes, I, I do not think this was a particularly strong episode. And of course, Ian is the focal point of the end of the episode when he stares into the screen and says, Doctor! But we don't see anything. Cue credits rolling, which I thought was just an extremely weak cliffhanger. I wanted to see something, but, you know, Billy was on his holidays. Don't tell me they did not have stock footage of William Hartnell's face. In a glass case. So that brings us on to our fourth and final episode, The Final Phase. Ian's found the Doctor, and he's going to make lobotomy fix him. But apparently they've never done this before. No. There are no tricks in science, only facts. There are bureaucratic a-holes. They could have come out of any sort of <laughs> Douglas Adams story ever. Well, if they're, if, they're, if they're that bureaucratic, I would think, you know, they wouldn't have a process unless it had been thoroughly tested and, you know, they made sure they knew how to reverse it and all of that. But no, no, apparently they just didn't do that. They're, the goal is to put stuff in the museum, not to take stuff just, out of the museum. Just rush shit into production. Why not? That's right. Test it in production. It's fine. This has never gone wrong at work. <laughs> I still don't understand why they needed to, like, they're like, okay, we found this old dude and we're going to make him. I still don't understand the reasoning behind it. Yeah, it's not as if they're that different. I mean, they have a bit more hair than the Morocks and a pair fewer eyebrows than the Xerons, but they're not that different. I'm still trying to find out, like, where, where's the foot traffic for this museum? I mean, they have, like, this amazing large exhibit. No visitors. Zero. They actually do mention that in the second episode, where they say that it used to be very well visited, but as the Empire's kind of in uh, decline, no one cares anymore, so no one comes. That must have been in the uh, first three minutes about the about Lobos complaining <laughs> about his sciatica. <laughs> But so despite all of that, the doctor is successfully resuscitated, but they do sneak in. Did anyone else notice there's that little line about how he might have brain damage? Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know if that will become a thing later, but So every every time from now on where Billy fluffs his lines, they have an excuse. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> he had a few of those in, in this serial. Uh, the luminescent walls, I think, was one of them. Some some of them before that. Then. then again, so did Lobos wasn't exactly perfect with his delivery either. So Yeah. And speaking of the Doctor, he's the one who notices that just how apathetic Lobos's men are. And it's like, oh, oh. Well, that's not what we've been noticing for the last two episodes, Doctor. Well done. I was really confused. Again, I was, again, confused why they're here. I'm like, why do you need so many armed people in this deserted museum? <laughs> And then why are the Xerons still there when it's like you could just not 
You could just not be there. I don't know. It's a worker's revolt that had an abandoned Six Flags. Pretty much. <laughs> you get the feeling that this is the kind of the assignment the Moroks get if they want something where they don't have to do anything or they're being punished and they're being sent off to the middle of nowhere. This is not the spot for the best and the brightest. So have you guys ever been in a place of work where if someone's really incompetent, but the company doesn't want to fire them, they just find a way to promote them into a different department? Yep. That's what happens here. Yeah. Everyone in the Morocks, like Lobos, he, he was, he's had the fastest promotion ever. He just gets promoted into other jobs until he gets the head honcho job at a gig that no one wants to be at. <laughs> Put him somewhere where no one's going to notice him. Exactly. I, I don't even think that's that's not even making fun. That's what's going on here, in my opinion. <laughs> There's a lot of commentary. <laughs> there really is. I mean, again, I think this is another script where the ideas are very sound. The execution just isn't great. So speaking of how in the first episode we saw a lot of commentary on on the tropes and in the history of the show so far. One thing I noticed was how the Doctor's conscience wouldn't allow him to put Lobos into the machine. And I was just sitting there wondering, wow, a year and a half ago, he was ready to brain Zar with a rock. <laughs> and now he's like, nope, can't do that. He it's might cruel. have wanted to brain Lobos with the control thing that Ian stepped on. He just wouldn't put True. him in the machine. <laughs> he might bludgeon him to death with it, but he's not going in there. Uh... That's entirely possible. That's fourth dimensional morality for you. Uh, I'm confused already. <laughs> I just love how this, this even descends into pantomime at this point. So you've got the Doctor and Ian talking to Lobos, and suddenly it's like, oh, look, they're behind you. I did. Uh, <sighs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was going to comment, but I got, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it just adds to the at times, slightly delightful comedic tone of the last three episodes. And then at this point, when you get drudged into another, this group has been downtrodden. This is the group that is controlling them. And let's have a revolution storyline. It just kind of wears a little bit thin. Yeah, but how often have we had that so far in it within the first doctor? That's true. It becomes later quite a popular thing, but this is still early on. So you can't really hold that against it. That's true. I'm trying to, I feel, I mean, maybe it's because I've seen so much Doctor Who, I'm not looking at it from the perspective of only seeing, you know, limiting myself to just up to where we are now. So maybe that's why it's clouding my judgment. Yeah. So the Ian and the Doctor are in a pretty bad spot. Yep. And then Vicky and Barbara. But Barbara finds herself getting captured very, very briefly. And then we have Vicky to the rescue. And that is turning the tables on what Barbara usually is. And again, I've been a little bit sad in Barbara's epicness in the last few episodes. That makes me kind of sad. We'll always, we'll always have Aztec Barbara. Yes. And Dalek Destruction Derby Barbara. <laughs> oh, that's the best Barbara. So the guns had a very unique sound. And very. then I just decided that they sounded like Susan screaming. <laughs> Uh, that's not something i needed to remember (laughs) you're welcome i did find it very funny and this goes back to my theory that this is the job nobody wants 
when things are really going to, going down, when the revolution has come, instead of taking the opportunity to, you know, step up and fight back, he's like, well, that's it. I'm leaving. I've got a ship prepared. <laughs> Just leave. Yep. I love how there are only about four Xerons that we actually see who are taking part in this revolution. The revolution will, be not, will not be televised. It will all be alluded to off screen. One of whom, which Don alluded to earlier, Tor, was played by Jeremy Bullock, who, of course, was notable for, for being the body, but not the voice, of Boba Fett in Star Wars. So there's your little Star Wars connection, your George Lucas connection of the story. And now that you've seen his eyebrows, you know why he had to wear that mask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he's also had, he's been in three Bond movies and Law and Order UK. He gets around. So was the revolution successful? Yes, yes, I think so. Okay. They didn't wind up in the museum, so yes. While that's starting to go down, there's that wonderful scene with Barbara and I think Vicky where they're getting a kind of philosophical about free will, which I think is really the theme of the story and, and how whether or not the future can be changed and whether there's such a thing as free will or whether everything is predestined. Again, we, we get those glimpses of depth in this story that are constantly not really explored to their fullest extent. And I wonder whether that's because our friend Dennis Spooner just watered the script down. I guess we, we'll never know for sure. So our intrepid TARDIS crew escape and they take a piece of equipment with them. And we'll get back to, to that next time around. It's of course that the Doctor wants fun tech. like. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Oh, another little callback. Speaking of tech, another little callback to the uh, Edge of Destruction was how the dimensional trouble at the beginning was caused by a faulty TARDIS component. I'm not sure whether it was like a stuck switch or whether it was a stuck spring again, but... He, he really needs to have that thing serviced. It's an oil chain. It does. Shop. Yeah. But now we get to the cliffhanger. We get Daleks. Daleks! After the little, the little bluff in the first episode. And they be spying. They Our do. greatest enemies. I, I'm sure we'll come back to it next time, but that poses all sorts of questions about, really, they, they've thwarted you twice. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's still, it's a really cool cliffhanger. Oh, it's a wonderful idea. I mean, it's, it's great. That wraps up our story discussion. So it must be metrics time. Me it is metrics time. All right. So Ian murder count. Ian murdered no one. It's really dropping his game he threatened came to close. Yeah, he didn't do close. it he got excited don't don't say that he did <laughs> all right the camp count was anything really camp in this story guys i don't think so unless you count the eyebrows <laughs> okay zero equally barbara murder count zero and the vicky pet name count zero zero for a revolution, not a lot of people died. On screen. No. Well, like we said, it's because it's, you know, a out-of-the-middle-of-nowhere outskirts job posting, and it's got a skeleton crew working it, so not exactly big time. Yeah, it's a somewhat of a, a damp squib of a revolution, but hey, they get their planet back. On to our vote. Julie, you were up first. First episode was great, and then it just deteriorated as we went along. Although there were great moments scattered in the wind. So we have the doctor being crazy, honestly, reminded me of Yoda, just 
messing with everybody. Vicky got to be awesome with her Viva la Revolution, which is great. I love it. And yeah, but again, Ian and Barbara just weren't doing a lot, which kind of makes me sad. And again, it's I see it as kind of like a forewarning. And that three minute scene was just still. I'm going to give it six and a half walruses out of ten. <laughs> okay. Riley. Of it's you, sir. All right. I, I feel pretty much in agreement with Julie. First episode, great, sets a wonderful table, and then just wants to like do a nice little trick and pull the tablecloth out. Instead, it just pulls everything that it set up down and smashes it. And it's just, you just kind of sit back and think about what could have been. Just gets kind of tiresome. The enjoyable parts for the last three episodes are just the. Uh, the banter between our beloved characters, which is enjoyable. And um, and the set design is nice. And choice of music is good, but and but that's that's about it. Like I said, it's like it's just all downhill from the first episode. And I'd also like to point out that I found it very interesting that Julie saw the Yoda connection with the first doctor because I don't know if anyone remembers, but on the very first episode or second episode of our podcast, I mentioned that the first doctor shares a lot of similarities with Yoda because he, especially in this serial, he does it so often. He does the Yoda, hmm? He does that all yes, he the does. time. And that's been a part of his character from the very beginning. And I cannot help but think that since Frank Oz, who I believe, if not English, has a lot of English connections and is growing up, watched Doctor Who. And when creating Yoda, decided to implement that into his character said it in the first episode and i'll say it again anyway for this serial i give it six eyebrows out of ten so for me I, I know i've said it before but this had such a strong first episode and then it's just downhill from there and i i think there are lots of really really good concepts here that got watered down during the scripting process and there there are glimpses of that but it's just another case of kind of unfulfilled promise so for me those good ideas in that strong first episode drag this up a little, but not enough to really give it a strong rating. So I'm going to give this six out of ten penny farthings. Don, over to you, sir. Well, two weeks in a row where I'm just going to screw with everybody. <laughs> Don is the new Riley. Aside from the first episode, which I think we all are in complete agreement on, and the first five minutes of the second episode which are really boring and most of that exposition could and should have been spread out through the rest of it. I would rather watch any part of this than ever see any bits of the crusade again. <laughs> the final three episodes, they aren't as good as the first one, but I don't think that's indicative of their quality. It's indicative of how amazing that first episode is realized. Yeah. Your final three, you're talking about a culture in decline and a revolution that's coming and how they all deal with that. I really liked it. I was entertained all the way through, aside from that first five minutes of the second episode. So just fast forward past that and get, get past Mr. Terrible, terrible hair. So I'm going to give it 8.5 bored bitchy bureaucrats out of 10. Oh, <laughs> Well done. You have saved this from being the worst rated story of the season so far. 
giving us a, a team average of 6.75 this story. With that, I think that's just about all we have time for this week. We will see you next time when we will be discussing The Chase. Thank you and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Widow's Peaks vs. Eyebrows, was recorded on Wednesday the 10th of July 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And always remember, revolution could be just around the corner, and maybe all it takes is a 25th century teenager with attitude to provoke it.